He is risen. It, it is uh, so great to come together as a body of Christ and, and celebrate corporately what is the most significant moment in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and these guys will be glad to give you one. Mr. Jim and, and Coop will be glad to give you one. Coop is, we decided first hour, he's an usher in training. Also known as a UIT, whatever that means. Cooper is a UIT. All right, I want to do something quickly, and then we will move into what I think the Lord would have for us today. Everybody take your hand out and turn it over to the side where the sermon message is. Have you had that? Or at the top of it, you will see it says True Church Fellowship, right? Is that correct? Yes? No? That's wrong. So... That was last week's sermon, and I'm not going to do that again, even though I've been known to do that kind of thing. So, actually, what's on the screen is correct, and it's, it's really important because that is going to be the emphasis of everything we talk about today, so I thought we ought to get, at least get the title right, if nothing else. So, to start with, the title is The Church's First Sermon, The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to Acts 2. So you can put your, your hand out there if you want to. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start there. 1 Corinthians 15. I heard a really cute story about Easter today, or this week, reading some stuff. and I think about uh, sweet folks all the time that are like across the hall. They're, they're working with children. They pour their hearts into it. They love the kids, and, and it's very special what they do. And there was a sweet lady like that, and she was just trying to get the children in her class to understand what Easter was about. It was on Palm Sunday, and she was talking about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and next Sunday we'll be celebrating his resurrection. And Easter is so important for us as Christians, and just trying to get those kids to understand it. And so she asked them, what is Easter all about? And what was their answer? And some of their answers. Easter bunny, what else? Eggs, new clothes. Pretty colors, like we had our four-year-old granddaughter was with us this weekend, and I noticed this morning that we didn't have the proper dress, apparently. She was not happy. And it wasn't the right color, or it didn't have polka dots on it. That's what it was. It wasn't the polka dotted dress. And, and so I'm thinking, four years old and already complaining about her clothes. She must be a woman. But <laughs> I'll leave that alone. So the teacher just desperately trying to get the children to understand what is Easter about, and having them give their answers. and So finally, this little girl raises her hand and says, I know, it's about Jesus coming out of the tomb. And she says, oh, great, great, you got it. He said, and what did Jesus do when he came out of the tomb? The little girl said, he went, ta-da! <laughs> so this other little boy raises his hand and says, no, no, that's not it. That's not what he did. She said, oh, finally, somebody will get it right what did Jesus do when he came out of the tomb? And the little boy said, he looked to see if he saw a shadow, and if he did, he went back in for six weeks. <laughs> it's, uh, unfortunately, that's, uh, for some of us, that's probably as far as we get. However, what I want us to do today is really focus on what it means to be the church. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and this dovetails, obviously, just beautifully as we've been studying Acts in the early church and how the Great Commission continues and what a significant fact it is that for us as Christians who are part of the church of Jesus Christ today, 
2,000 plus years later from the day of Pentecost when Peter, Peter preached the first sermon of the church. His topic, his subject, his focus was the resurrection of Jesus Christ because without the resurrection of the Jesus, uh, the Jesus, without the resurrection of Jesus who is the Christ, if he did not rise from the dead, Paul writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 15, we're wasting our time. That we're liars, that you're still in your sins, there's no redemption. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, what we believe is worthless. It has no value, and we should be pitied by all the world, which in many cases, that's the way they look at Christians anyway. And the truth is, if Jesus did not come out of that tomb, he's a liar, because he said, destroy this body, and in three days, I will raise it up. He's a liar, and if he's a liar, he can't redeem you because he's a sinner. But the fact is that Paul then ends that treatise in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep. What first fruits means is a harvest began with Jesus and you and I and every one of us who is born again until Jesus comes back and we go to spend eternity with him forever. All of us are together in the eternal state as his bride. We're the latter harvest. We, as the church, have a message. Peter's message to the Jews at Jerusalem on Pentecost is that Jesus, who is the Christ, has risen from the dead. He is your Messiah. His message to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you, obviously this is the Apostle Paul, we'll get back to that in a moment. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in, believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, I, the Apostle Paul, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Scriptures would be what you and I would call the Old Testament. To them, it was their scriptures, to the Jews. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He says it twice. Incredibly significant. But here in these verses is the gospel in a nutshell. Christ died. He was buried. And he rose again. Jesus was that Christ, that Messiah. And for you Jews... Go back now, turn over to Acts chapter 2. Peter's message to them was that Jesus, whom you crucified 50 days prior, has now risen from the dead, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the gospel is summed up this way. He came, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and in him you can stand saved. Outside him, without him, you have no hope. But with him, you have all hope. You have eternal life. You have life now and forever. So the message that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost is that Jesus has come. He is the Messiah. He's risen from the dead. And in him, you might have life. So I want us to set the context for this sermon and then realize, look at exactly what Peter said. Here's the context. It's the day of Pentecost. We've been talking about it over the last month or so. It's the day when the Holy Spirit is sent 
by Jesus. God empowers them. He said, stay at Jerusalem. You will receive power. Then I want you to go. The Great Commission, go. And it continues to this day in us. They received the power of the Holy Spirit. And they had those three great signs, the sign of the wind, the sign of the flames of fire, that looks like the flames of fire on their heads, and then them speaking in tongues, Peter speaking, and them hearing in their own individual languages, whatever that might be. They've heard and they've seen three great signs to verify this day as special and ordained by God. That's where they are. This is 50 days from when these same people had said, we don't want Jesus, give us Barabbas instead. We'll take a murderer instead of the giver of life. We will crucify the Son of God. We will set free Barabbas. Fifty days prior, the man preaching the sermon, Peter, had said what about Jesus? Three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then the third time the Bible says he cursed, which would be like you and I using foul language to say, I'm telling you, I don't know him. In front of a little servant girl, he denied his Lord and Savior, Jesus, the Christ, 50 days prior. Then God miraculously restores Peter. Jesus appears to him, restores him. It says, now, I want you to feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, that's the day he's preaching this sermon. It's the birthday of the church. The day the church is birthed, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and the church age begins. And one more time, and I will say it a lot as we go through the book of Acts together, it's the day... The church was birthed. The Great Commission begins. And Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of me. And across the hall, on most Sundays, across the street, in here, and in all that we do as the church, we're still involved in that Great Commission. It has not changed. It's the call on our lives. It's, it, they are our marching orders. And it's a thrill to understand we've been chosen by God for this time in history to go into the world, our world, where we are, and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. A high call, an amazing privilege. So on that first birthday of the church, the day it was born, remember that at Pentecost, there are millions of Jews in Jerusalem to celebrate that great festival. At the end of this sermon... 3,000 of people in that crowd give their lives to Jesus Christ. Peter said, they'll be saved from this perverse generation. And 3,000 of them turn to Jesus. And the church begins. And as we see, as, we'll go, as we will see going through Acts, it just blooms and blossoms and explodes. And history tells us it changed the world. Again, today, our privilege to be part of that church. This local body is part of the universal church as we go into the world. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2 in Acts. 2.21. Quoting from the Old Testament, Peter says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be 
saved. Now remember, the audience is Jewish. He's quoting to them from their scriptures. What you and I would call the Old Testament. So to the Jews, they held this in high esteem. Peter quotes to them, verse 21, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, you call on the name of the Lord. The very next thing he says, verse 22, Men of Israel, Jewish folk, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Context, flow, understanding historical context. He's saying to the Jews, you revere the scriptures, and the scriptures say to you, call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved, and that name that you should call on at that moment in time, and even as we sit here today, 2,000 plus years later, it's the Holy Spirit that empowered them on the day of Pentecost is in our midst right now. He says to those Jews, from your own scriptures, call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and I'm telling you that name is Jesus. That name is Jesus of Nazareth. If you remember back in the life of Jesus Christ, someone said, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And what was their response? Nazareth. Ain't nothing good in Nazareth. That's uh, Galilean. Ain't nothing good in Nazareth. They would look down on him. can't be. He's saying that name is Jesus. Peter is the preacher. So let's look at exactly what happened. Take your hand out. Number one, the events on this day. How he begins to tell them about the gospel. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So he says, all right, you guys, remember Jesus. Most of them were eyewitnesses at some point, to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. They're here for for Passover, for Pentecost. These historical events, Jesus was here for his final Passover with them. Then he dies. He's buried as the Lamb of God. He rises from the dead as the beginning of the first fruits. Every term that's used is a reference, a Jewish reference back to their holidays. Passover, the festivals, going all the way back to the Exodus. What's the first thing John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. That goes all the way back to the Exodus. And God said this would be a memorial, eternal memorial in your midst. That the death angel passed over and you were delivered by the hand of God. Picture of what Jesus would do. As the Lamb, he came. He allowed himself as a Lamb to be slaughtered for our sins. So you see the gospel events. So the first thing that that Peter addresses is the life of Jesus Christ. That he worked in your midst. You saw it. Nobody can deny the wonders and the signs that he did. The incredible miracles, quote, in your midst and you know. They were proven. They were attested by God. Proven, convincing, mind-blowing miracles. Not parlor tricks. That no one could deny always pointed to a spiritual truth. For example, when Jesus fed the 5,000, which is probably more like 15 or 20,000, when he fed them with that small lunch, which Jethro Bodine, for those of you Beverly Hillbillies fans, wasn't even near that big. When he fed them with that little lunch, he then told them what? I am the bread of life. He said things like, I am the door to the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
just prior to raising Lazarus from the dead, an incredible miracle. He walks up to a tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth as his object lesson. Pretty good, probably better than even a PowerPoint presentation. Here comes a dead man walking out of the cemetery. And prior to doing that, Jesus said those incredible words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, though he may die, yet he will live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Lazarus was no doubt dead. Jesus waited four days so there would be no doubt that he was a dead man. The Bible even says that they said to him, Lord, by now he stinks. They all knew he was a corpse. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come here. What do you think they thought when he came? They, they said, there's no doubt. This is a no doubter. He was dead. And now he's alive. Jesus did that. So that's what Peter is saying. Let's start with his life. Even if you don't believe what we're telling you about him. He did miracles nobody else can do. And then he taught you in a way no one has ever taught. With an authority that we've never seen. His earthly life. Jesus said this. While he was on earth, during his earthing ministry, he said this. Though you do not believe me, what I say to you. Believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. When Jesus healed somebody, there were no doubters. People with congenital paralysis. It wasn't something like, I feel like I got a pain in my back and it's gone. He would go up to a man who had never walked and say, walk. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 3 starting next week. Just walk. Peter's allowed to do that. God empowers him. Things only God can do. That's what Jesus did. You don't walk on top of water. You don't go up to a keg of water and change its molecular structure from H2O to wine. Jesus did. Because he was God. So the first point that Peter makes in the first sermon Points that we still share today, that Jesus was unique. Think about it. How many people today, on Easter Sunday, in every church around the world, have more people in attendance than they normally do? Why is that? Because everybody knows there's something special about Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just another great man, even though he was the greatest man that ever lived. Not just another great moral teacher, even though he was the greatest moral teacher that ever lived. Not just another great example, even though he was the greatest example that ever lived. He's more than that. Even if you don't believe Scripture, even if you don't believe what we as Christians believe and teach and propagate, just look at history. What he did, who he was. The Romans couldn't deny. What did Pilate say about him? I can't find anything wrong with him. Even the Jews, they knew there was nothing wrong with him. They made it up. They lied to get him crucified. They knew that in his life, he was perfect. That's why when he dies for your sins, the whole emphasis of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus died once for all. And bought our way into the presence of God through his body, the veil of his flesh. So that never has to be done again. He was unique because his sacrifice was that of the God man, not just a man. A lot of people have died for what they believe. A lot of people have been martyrs. But only one person died 
to redeem humanity because he was God. Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Secondly, verse 23, when just his life was his death. Verse 23, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you've crucified and put to death. A couple of things I want you to note here, that this was the plan of God from all eternity. Jesus wasn't a victim. Philippians tells us, and Scripture teaches, that he willingly, volitionally, he chose to allow himself to be scourged, beaten. He allowed himself to be mocked. He allowed himself to be tortured to death through crucifixion. He chose to do that. Why? Because he loved us. For God so loved the world. And... No one else could do it. No one else could pay the price. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden in original sin. God had to provide atonement. Covering means atonement. He provided it, and in that moment he said to Satan, there's a seed coming that will crush your head. On Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross, Satan thought, hmm, I guess they were wrong in the Garden of Eden. I've won. But then Sunday came. And what was Satan thinking when Sunday came? Uh Uh-oh. I'm in some deep stuff now. He knew he had lost. He knows it now. He knows he's lost because, because Jesus rose from the dead. And he conquered sin and death that entered the world in the Garden of Eden. He conquered it when he walked out of that tomb. And so... We fight from victory, not to get victory. Easter is simply about the victorious resurrection of the Son of God to provide us with life. Now, Satan will do everything to keep you defeated. He's the great deceiver. He wants to keep you down. He wants to be the accuser of the brethren. But every time he walks before, I love this metaphorical picture in Scripture because it means so much. The Bible tells us Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. We're going to see that in a moment. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So he's constantly going before the father and saying, what about Randy? Look at him. Look at what Randy just did. Look at Randy's thought life. Look at Randy. What does Jesus say? I got him. He's covered in the blood. He's mine. You can accuse him all you want to. Those sins are forgiven. He's mine. Without the resurrection, that didn't, that's not happening. Without the resurrection, I have no hope. With it, I have all hope. He rose from the dead. His death was the plan of God, but also was the responsibility of man. He's saying to this Jewish audience, I don't want you to miss this because it will be important in a moment. He's saying to this Jewish audience, you're responsible for what you did. It was the great eternal plan of God to redeem mankind, but you rejected the Messiah, chose a murderer who deserved to die instead of the Messiah. You are responsible for your deeds. You will see in a few moments they're terrified to realize we're complicit in the murder of the Messiah. What are we going to do? And the irony is the Messiah says, come to me. I will give you life. I will give you hope. Come to me. He died. He wasn't a victim. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, all the way back. Revelation 13 says these words. All who dwell on the earth 
will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We worship the great lamb of God, God's eternal plan. Third point is his resurrection. Verse 24, this Jesus that you crucified, God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by death. This is the theme of Peter's sermon. This was the theme of the writings of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. This is the theme of the church. Here we are as we stand here, sit here, 2,000 years after Peter preached his sermon that day at Pentecost. Our theme is Jesus rose from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because everybody you know can be set free from the pains of death like Jesus was in him. This is the theme of the church. It's the climax, the apex of all history. Because when he walked out of that tomb, it proved, number one, that he's God. And number two, it proved that death could not hold him. Everybody you know, I don't care who they are, I don't care how much money they have, and even people you don't know, I don't care who they are, I don't care how much money they have. What's the one thing they're not buying off? It's death. It's appointed unto man once to die. You have no choice. But if you're in Jesus, you don't worry about it. In a very real way, the early church looked forward to dying. Why? Because they knew where did they go when they died. They went to paradise. They went home. They went to see Jesus again. So do we. That's why the Bible says, Ecclesiastes 7, 7 1, that the day of your death is, is better than the day of your birth. If you're in Christ. If not, it terrifies you. It terrifies you. He rose from the dead. It proves he's God. It proves he conquered death. Victory. Victory. I love the phrase there. Look at verse 24 again. It says he loosed him the pains of death. The original language, the literal, says it this way. He destroyed the agony. The agony of death was destroyed by Jesus Christ. Just like he said it would be. You destroy this body, but in three days I'm going to raise it up. Death's not going to hold me. Because I have, Revelation tells us later, I have the keys of death and hell. I am God. I am God. I'm the resurrection and the life. He said in another place, I lay down my life that I may take it again on my own initiative. It was the promise of Jesus. It was the power of Jesus that made it happen. And it was his plan. So, what does this mean to us? The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Romans the following words. Therefore, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, please note that phrase, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we'll also be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
Here's the phrase I want you to hang on to for a minute in application for us before we look at the last couple of points. It says, and Paul spends a lot of time in Romans 6, 7, and 8 dealing with this, but here's the gist of it. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, that incredible power that conquered death, it was more powerful than the worst that Satan and the world could throw at him was death. He conquered that. So he says to us now, in Christ, you identify with him, you're born again, you're baptized into Christ. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, even so, quote, you should walk in newness of life. What does walk mean? It means not just on Resurrection Sunday, but next Tuesday in August, in July, in September, tomorrow, that in every day of my life as a believer in Jesus Christ, I live, I walk somewhere. Wherever I find myself, that I realize I'm new in Christ. It should be exciting for you. It, it should be, every day you should wake up and realize that the Bible says even the fact that the sun rises is a reminder to you that your God is there. You're in Christ. It's new. You have a new life. You're born again. Not just the day you got saved, but every day you're being saved. You're being sent out on the great commission to go into all the world. Wherever your little part of the world is, God has sent you there to tell people, glory to God, Jesus rose from the dead. So here's what you do tomorrow at work. You just go up to everybody you know and you tap them. And when they look at you, you say, glory to God, Jesus rose from the dead. Obviously, you're not going to do that. Well, some of you might. But what you can do is live like somebody who has been born again. Live like Jesus Christ. And then pray for and seek opportunities to tell people how Jesus can change their lives. Just this week, there's a little store I stop in every week to buy my lottery ticket. I still say if you're paying attention. I go to this same little place every day and buy, we don't take the newspaper anymore, but we buy one on, on Sundays to, uh, whatever reason, I guess to get coupons, I don't know. There's certainly nothing worth reading. But I always go to the same place. Early in the morning on the way to church, I'll stop in and get one and, and take it home after church. Same girl works the counter every week. This has been going on for months. She's the same girl there every time. And the Lord laid in my heart this morning, say something to her about the resurrection. So I went in there and I just, again, I get my paper. She, 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 has a, she sees me get out of the car. She knows it's been weeks and weeks. So I just said, God has laid you on my heart. I don't even know your name. And I told her who I was. She didn't know who I was. Didn't know where the church was. So I said, next door to Fred's. So, then she knew. I told her who I was, told her my name. She told me her name. And I said, God just laid me on your heart. I want you to know. I really want you to have a happy Easter. I know you're having to work, but also how that, that Jesus loves you. He rose from the dead. And if I can, gave her my card. I said, if there's any way I can pray with you or for you, please contact me. She goes, oh, you know my dad. And turns out I have known her dad for a long time. Didn't even... See, I just had to, do, I had to say what to the Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. I'll do that. Now, I, you know, I'm a very outgoing. I'm not an 
introvert. I'm very much an extrovert. I love to talk to people and I love to make friends. But what is it about us as Christians that the one thing that we have the hardest to talk about is Jesus? We think we're going to offend somebody possibly. I, I understand all that. But the greatest thing you can ever do for anybody is to share with them the Savior who set you free and who will set them free. Not going to church, even though that's part of it, not being religious, not turning over a new leaf, but introducing them to the God who walked out of the tomb and conquered the agony of death for them. It's so important that we understand who we are in Christ and the privilege to tell people about him. So the next point, verse 33, after all of this, when Jesus, after he rises, you see his exaltation, verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, there it is again, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, David did. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, he's quoting their scriptures again, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Remember, the crowd, 50 days prior, what had been their response to Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. So now, Peter says to them, I know you revere David. Again, David would have been up there with Abraham, Moses, Elijah on that Mount Rushmore for Jews. I know you revere King David. King David looked forward to Jesus' day. You rejected Jesus. But he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father, the highest seat of majesty and authority and power in the universe. The Bible says this about him. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He's at the right hand of God, the Father interceding on our behalf, we've mentioned. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, If then you were raised with Christ, that new life we talked about, Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Peter wrote, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers subject to him, including Satan. The writer of Hebrews, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God and from that time waiting till his enemies become his footstool. I hope you're seeing a theme here. Peter, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, on and on and on throughout the New Testament. The exaltation of Jesus of Nazareth. He was not the guy from Nazareth that you rejected. He was. Look at the end of verse 36. This Jesus whom you crucified has been made both Lord and Christ. Very significant terminology to Jews. Christ means Messiah. Here's what he's saying to them. The Jesus that you rejected, the guy from Nazareth, turns out he is the Messiah. But he's also Lord. You know what Lord means? It means he's owner and master of all. Now, what are they thinking in their hearts at this point? 
uh-oh, we murdered God. There's no hope for us. We murdered the Messiah. That exalted position. Notice verse 33. I love this verse. He's exalted to the right hand of God. Look at the end of it. He poured out this which you now see and hear. Now specifically, in the immediate context, here's what Peter's talking about. It's the day of Pentecost. And they have seen those three great signs as the Holy Spirit falls. He's saying, what you have seen today, Jesus made that happen. Because he's ascended to the right hand of God. He is God. He's pouring out this today. He sent the Holy Spirit to empower us. And you see these signs so that you'll see that these are not parlor tricks. This is not a game. This is God working. And Jesus is responsible for that. So let's quickly look at the witnesses. The first witness we've mentioned is David. Verses 25 through 31, Peter is quoting from Psalm 16, written by David. Remember, the audience is Jewish. Look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He's dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the, to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. In other words, David was an ancestor of the Messiah. Verse 31, he foreseeing this, David spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, that his soul was not left in Hades, the abode of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. What's the next two words in your Bible? This Jesus God has raised up. So here's the first witness, Peter says. It's David, your own scriptures, your own revered David. David himself foresaw and prophesied that his descendant, the Christ, the Messiah, would come, would die, be buried, but his body didn't see corruption. Why did the Messiah's body not see corruption? Because Jesus did what? Rose from the dead. His body walked out of the tomb. He didn't see corruption. Here's what he's saying. If you don't believe me, we have David's tomb. Why don't we all jump in the bus and go where? Let's go over there and look at it. There's David's tomb. And if you open up David's tomb, what are you going to find in it? David's decayed and corrupted body. Because David didn't do what? He didn't rise from the dead. But let's go to the tomb where Jesus was. By the way, talk about skeptics, and there were many. Why didn't they just produce Jesus' body? Let's all jump in the bus now and let's go where we buried Jesus in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. What are you going to see when you get there? You're going to see a stone roll away and you're going to walk in there. What are you going to see? Nothing except his grave clothes because he just exploded out of them. He rose from the dead. I hope you have goosebumps because I do. That's who you serve today. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is in our midst. He's watching us as we share his word, as we worship together. And he's saying, go tell people about me. Because I'm telling you, nobody else is going to change this world. 
Ain't nobody else solving the problems of the United States. Nobody's changing individual hearts except Jesus of Nazareth. Because he's God. He rose from the dead. You look at the witness. Hebrews 12 says this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I hope you see the paradox there. Despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. The cross is the worst form of torture in human humanity has ever devised to torture another human to death. It's crucifixion. And the Bible says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. It wasn't the joy of the physical pain of the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating blood. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's in agony on the cross. It wasn't for that. So what is the joy that Jesus endured the cross for? What is the joy? The joy is that he knew he was going to rise from the dead. And he knew that he was going to be able to offer you eternal life. He knew he was going to die for the sins of mankind and offer redemption. How long had he known that? Forever. And he did it anyway. It's interesting to me, and this is just me, I can't wait to get to heaven and find out exactly all the details. Why did God choose crucifixion as the way to kill our Savior? And I believe because you, if you study crucifixion, it'll bring you to tears. You'll never study it. And you'll never Look at Jesus the same again. You can't kill a human being in, in any more horrific way than crucifixion. Your heart literally explodes because you can't get up and get a breath. God did that because he loved Randy. He loved me. I can't serve that. Yeah, I can. He did that because he loves you. He endured it. And then look at verse 32, the end of it. Just a simple little phrase. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. We saw him, specifically the apostles, but others, over 500 brethren at once, 1 Corinthians 15. They saw him. Thomas, put your fingers in my side. Here, right here. Put, your, put them here. See the, see the wounds. Touch them. They saw it. That's what changed them from, from doubting Thomas to denying Peter to send me, Lord. Send me. I, I will die for you. So finally, let's quickly look at the promise of this gospel. We talked about it a lot. Just hit the highlights. Verse 37, it offers hope. Please put yourself in the shoes of the sandals of those people after they hear this message. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? When they heard this, heard what? Uh-oh, we killed Jesus. Jesus is going to be our judge. He alone can save us, and we killed him. In their heart, it says they're cut to the heart. And that means in Greek, suddenly, unexpectedly overcome with guilt and personally aware that I did it. In their heart, what are they saying to Peter and the apostles? Is there any hope for us? What are we going to do? 
They were cut to the heart. What shall we do? Is there any way we can pay this back? Is there any penance we can do? Yeah, you can do something. You sure can. Look at the next verse. Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized. Notice the next phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Call on the name of Jesus. What are you going to get? You're going to get forgiveness of sins. Repent. That means change your mind. It doesn't mean like your kids. You ever caught your kids doing something wrong and they're what? I am so sorry, Dad. I am, Mommy, I didn't mean, I am so sorry. If they can't find somebody to blame it on, that's what they're going to do, right? You know it's true because you were that way. So was I. Fortunately, I had my older brother. He was always easy to blame it on him. That's not what repentance is. Repentance, it means you change your mind. Remember, 50 days prior, what was their mind about Jesus? He's not the Messiah. He's a blasphemer. Crucify him. Repentance means change your mind about Jesus. And, oh, he's the Messiah. I believe it. And change your purpose toward him. Give him your life. Not, I'm sorry I got caught, but I'm guilt-ridden. Forgive me. Save me. I want to be a follower of Jesus. And notice what Peter says to him. If you repent and be baptized, it simply means to identify in the name of Jesus. What happens to you? Look at the verse again. Repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see that? Did he ask him for any money? Did he ask him to do anything? Did he ask him to show up at church? Give alms, pray in public. He simply said, repent, be honest, be real with God. Give him your life. You're going to get your sins forgiven, and you're going to get the presence of the Holy Spirit, which you've seen, by the way, today, and do some pretty cool things. That's what's going to happen to you. You're going to get the Holy Spirit. And then the result, verse 40, you, you get salvation. With many other words, he testified and he exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. At that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 of them realized, I need Jesus. Albert Moeller wrote these words. I find very appropriate at this moment. If all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, the Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion... Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self, Oprah will do. But if we need a savior... Only Jesus will do. That was true 2,000 years ago. It was true in the Garden of Eden. And it's true as you sit here today. I don't know where you are spiritually, but Jesus does. And he's begging you, if you've never given your life to me, give it to me now. And I will give you everything you ever asked for. Not money. Not permanent health. We're all going to die of something. But I will give you peace, hope, joy, 
genuine happiness as you do life because I conquered death. You never have to be afraid again. Would you bow your heads, please? Our Father, we love you so much. We're so grateful for who Jesus is, for what he's done, what he is doing. We think about that first resurrection Sunday when the women came to the tomb and the angel said, he is not here, he is risen. What a moment. We think about Pentecost when Peter boldly proclaims, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and he's the Lord God. 3,000 people gave him their lives. I pray, Lord, today for those of us who are born again, Christians, we'd be excited about our faith, about our Jesus. Live it, love him, and tell other people. And Father, if there's somebody that's here that's never given their life to Christ, what a great day to get saved. Easter Sunday, Peter said to, to them that first sermon, be saved from this perverse generation. There's no question we live in a perverse generation. So I know the Holy Spirit is saying to us, if you're not born again, be saved. Just simply look at Jesus. Repent and ask him to forgive you. He will. And he'll give you the Holy Spirit. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand.